Academics at Warwick Business School have an eclectic range of research interests, from the science and psychology behind self-driving cars to the effects of artificial intelligence on society. But what impact is that research having on our day-to-day lives? Well, in this series of Core Insights podcasts, we'll be trying to find out. We'll be bringing together two people who can speak from personal experience about how the theoretical can inform the practical and how academic research at Warwick can drive real change in the public and private sector. I'm joined by Nick Chater, Professor of Behavioural Science at Warwick Business School, and by Edward Gardner, himself a Warwick Behavioural Scientist, but now also Director of COGCO, a tech consultancy partnering with large corporations, charities and government departments to help private businesses and public services thrive. And I'll start with you, Edward. How has moving from the pure to the applied changed your perspective on things? Well, I don't think it was a a kind of penny drop moment. I think my um, kind of change in perspective was something that, that came over time as a result of working in in the business school and understanding the importance of basic science and and pure science to better understand the core principles behind how and why people behave the way they do. And I think thanks then to to working with Nick as well, beginning to understand uh, the broader applications of those principles in the real world, uh, in the public and private sector. And I think it's that change over time that then uh, kind of led me, I guess, to to move out of academia and into, into consultancy. And Nick, when you stroll into the business school every day, do you you see yourself as part of that process whereby you and your colleagues in the groves of academe initiate the research and then pass them on to the outside world for the public good? Well, I I think I can see a slightly more two-way process than that. So I I think academics quite frequently, certainly in, in my case, quite frequently start out focusing on the pure research and think, oh, there's all kinds of brilliant insights about human behavior here. These will be terribly useful to people in, in government and business. Um, but when you actually start to try to deliver those insights to people in government and business, you often find that they're not they're much less interested than you expect because their real problems are different. Um, so you say, here's a here's a brainwave that's going to really, really help you. And they say, yeah, but that's not my problem. My problem's this. Um, so then you have to kind of rethink and sort of step back. Um, so I think the the, the the process of interaction with with the real world is is actually a very interesting one for academics because it forces you to change your own perspective. Now, the last time we spoke, Nick, I think our thing was the complexity of dev- devising and designing safe and effective autonomous vehicles. Um, but as I said in the introduction, Warwick is nothing if not eclectic. So give me a flavour of the other areas of research that you're feeding into people like Edward. Uh, well, I think there's, there's quite a wide range, really. I mean, from my own personal perspective, one of the things that's most interesting is the, um, is, is, is the sort of basic sort of perception um, and sort of memory of machinery of the of the mind. So, for example, in the case of perception, we, we see, see the world in a very relative way. So we don't really know how heavy or bright or painful anything is. We, we, we can think in a comparative way. So one thing's brighter, heavier, more painful than another. Um, and this general relativity um, that's that's something that's very very important, I think. So so you can it, it, this is a you know, very kind of obvious public policy point, but th- this is a this this tends to imply that you can make everybody's cars a bit faster or a bit bigger or everybody's houses more spacious or their showers a bit hotter, but they don't really feel much happier about it because they're only comparing 
all of those things with everybody else's showers and cars and houses. Um, and they were all changing too. So you have this sort of strange, um, sometimes known as a hedronic treadmill, that, um, that, that we can make our material lives better in some way, all of our lives better, but it doesn't really make us feel any better off. And so if you're thinking about public policy, you've got to be careful that you don't funnel vast amounts of resources into, into the economy gradually changing things that we all just tune out with respect to and just don't just ignore. And I should say there are things that are not like that. So things like um, uh, strength of social relationships, these seem to be really important. These seem to really matter to people's happiness. That's not my area, but we have people in the group working directly on, on happiness. Uh, so things like that, I mean, it's not that you don't, people don't get used to being lonely. They say, oh, after being lonely for two, 10, 10 years, I'm thinking it's absolutely fine. The occasional chat in the shop for, for a couple of minutes is absolutely fine for me. That's not the case at all. So, so for, for people can get used to all sorts of things, but being being um, socially disconnected is not one of them. And, now that, and that, that's very interesting, though, you know, the way people think, their emotions and so forth. But on a day-to-day level, Edward, that's a long way from you and your business. What is it about, if you like, digital tech that responds so well to the insights of behavioural science? Well, I think that the principle that Nick just explained there, this idea that everything is relative, feeds into all walks of uh, work that we do. So we work a lot with technology firms that are trying to guide people's decisions in, in one way or another. So that might be, for example, to choose a lower carbon alternative form of transport. Uh, it might be choosing a payment option at checkout. Uh, it might be choosing a product or services uh, within an app. And this principle that everything is relative plays out in, in all of those different choices. So how we think about designing that choice or even just the product or service in the first place um, is really, really based on these kind of very fundamental principles of behavioral science. Um, I think the difference is that then when you move uh, into the world of industry, we then begin to pull on uh, insights and skills and methods from other disciplines as well. So at Cogco, we uh, use insights from behavioral science, but then also uh, design uh, and data science as well. And it's together you get this much richer uh, picture of, of human behavior. And you can use that to inform the design of everything from policies through to the, uh, the screen that someone might see uh, when they're clicking through on an app. Because Edward, in your position as entrepreneur, on the payroll, and not just behavioural scientists, but people in design, people in data science and so on. In practice, how do you turn that raw data and academic theory into everyday processes that can help your customers? So uh, we spend a lot of time thinking about this question. And um, I guess we pride ourselves on a couple of values at Cogco. So one is, is kind of show the evidence. So we pride ourselves on having connection into, into academia our work being based on, on the kind of latest insights from those disciplines. But also there is a real skill uh, in translating those insights into, into practical recommendations. And, and that is the work that we do as, as a consultancy. Uh, and we've spent a lot of time trying to do that. And, and it's by working with people like Nick, who are coming from the perspective of how can I think about applying these insights uh, in a way or, or providing recommendations such a way that people like ourselves can apply them readily on a day-to-day basis, uh, which is so valuable. Um, Now, I hope this isn't a low blow, Edward, but in addition to using data science and so forth to make the world a better place, um, how do you use that research and academic theory to design and produce an app that will not only benefit us, but frankly, will wipe the floor with the competition? So, a lot of the companies that we work with see the use of behavioral science as a competitive advantage. And for us, 
the more we can understand what guides decision making, the more that we can design products and services that are in the interests and that ultimately benefit the audience that, that we are trying to work with it. So yeah, there will always be a competitive edge. And that's why a lot of the work that we do, we, we don't talk about publicly because there is a kind of a competitive advantage to that work and those insights. But also we are still um, mindful of the fact and primarily driven by the fact that we want to improve uh, life for people. Uh, and I think actually some, some work that Nick and I uh, did together a few years ago kind of developed this ethical principle of of um if people knew what we were doing would would the majority be happy of that is also something that kind of underpins a lot of the work that we do and that we are not out to deceive we're not out to, to to trick people in any way we're out to think about how can we design a process that is easier how can we design a product or a services that, that is in in people's interests and and we'll say guide them towards the right product for them uh, and so forth. And yes, there will be both a commercial and often a, a social purpose to those decisions uh, and to those products and services. Uh, Nick, but... uh, and on that particular area, in the old days, for Edward to do effectively what he's doing now, he could have turned to market research or focus groups. What are you giving him that's much better than the old tool? Well, I think the uh, it's, it's not that market research and focus groups don't have their their, their uses, and they, they certainly do. But um, but what you're getting are these sort of fundamental principles of how the mind operates. So if we take an example like um, trying to produce a carbon calculating app for people, so they can figure out where they're um, where, where they're burning their carbon, and therefore how to reduce their carbon impact. And if you're thinking about that problem, you could think, well, we just need to give people you know, um, measures in you know, sort of carbon gram, you know, grams of carbon or kilograms of carbon or tons of carbon or something for everything they do. Um, but, you, but if you tried to do that, you'd find that people were just baffled by these numbers. They just didn't know what to do with them. So these absolute figures would just be like totally meaningless. If you think relatively, you realize that the only thing that really matters is um, if I've got various goals I need to achieve, what, what, is the, what is the low carbon way of achieving that goal? In the relative decisions are very easy. And we also need to know which are the big decisions. So, so, so it's not just given a decision, you know, here are three options, one's you know, 10 times less carbon than the other. Ah, that's the one I should be choosing then. It's also which, which, one, which, which of these decisions matter. So these sort of relative questions, they change your perspective on what you're trying to do. So instead of trying to say, let's associate something with um, each action with some absolute figures, like kilograms of carbon or something, then which is probably hopeless, you're trying to turn it into... Um, a much more relative thing, saying this decision really matters, really pay attention to this one, and here are your options, and this one is much, much better than the other, or whatever it may be. And that's the kind of, getting those sort of crude, um, simple, relative judgments right is probably the key. And if you talk to, to focus groups and uh, and you do market research, you won't really start from that perspective. You're not thinking, well, what what pe- what can people do? You know, how do they? They're all are they able to 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 hold in their mind lots of numbers and add them all together? Uh, well, probably intuitively, probably not. But then, how do we make decisions? Um, you yeah, know, and then you can you can think about um, yeah how, how to how to do these things better. So it's you know, these questions are always of a, of a relative nature, and you need to try and think very carefully about how to how to frame it in a way that is actually useful information to people. Let, let, let's hmm. put that point about the focus group. Why why would you turn to the the university and the business school in this case rather than to a focus group or a bit of market research? So um, I think the. It's a slightly false dichotomy, I think, the the old versus new methods. So we use a whole 
range of research methods at Cubco, depending on the answer uh, or the question, sorry, that we are trying to answer. And so we do have we have a, a qualitative researcher at Cubco. We do do um, kind of interviews and observation, uh, as well as uh, experiments, uh, both in the lab uh, and out in the field. Uh, and it's through that combination of methods that we can better understand both what uh, people feel or experience or do, and why this question of why do people behave in a particular way. Uh, so I think it's about supplementing rather than replacing um, existing market research methods. So yes, sometimes challenge that approach, and sometimes it can feel uncomfortable um, taking a taking a novel approach using experimentation. Uh, using the types of methods that, that Nick and others have, have pioneered uh, at the business school in order to really get to this understanding of both why do people behave in a particular way, also, more importantly, what works in terms of actually changing behaviour. Um, and, and presumably you can do that because you're, I think the phrase is nimble. You're not producing lines of uh, cars or you're not a heavy engineering plant. You can change you know, within a week, within a day as the wind blows. Yeah, correct. And so a lot of the, the partners that we work with, uh, we run what we call simulated experiments. So these will be often with a panel. Um, they might be digital or online or through some kind of simulation of, of the product or, or service that we are potentially looking to change in the real world. And that allows us to test lots of different iterations uh, of the same features or uh, product features. So Nick was just talking about... Um, kind of making choices based on uh, carbon, for example. So uh, one of our partners, Kogo, they're an app that helps people, I guess, choose lower carbon alternatives. Uh, and we recently uh, ran an experiment, which was looking at different ways that you might present that information to help guide them towards um, the option that, that has the lower lower carbon uh, and also improve their their carbon literacy. So yeah, we're, we're able to be quite nimble in that, in that respect and uh, also combine then uh, different methods and iterate over time. Now, for a while, Nick, you used your academic experience to shape public policy yourself um, as a member of the government's behavioural insights team, the so-called nudge unit at number 10. How did that work? Yes, yeah, so I was a, an advisor for many years uh, on the academic advisory board for the behavioural insights team. And as you say, it started out as part of the cabinet's office, so it was, it was a, a bit of government. And in those days, uh, early on, it probably had something like six or eight um, employees, and then it gradually um, became bigger and bigger, and it was going to be floated out as, as a separate um, company, now now uh, externally owned. And, and it's actually been astonishingly successful. It has about, I think, 200 or more than 200 employees now and works across the world. Um, and I'm now at arm's length from that. And I think the nudge unit terminology is slightly dangerous, and I think it's something I've got slightly kicking against these days, because it gives the impression, which was really never the intention from the very start, that all that behavioural insights can do for you is make sort of slight adjustments to the way you implement a policy. So one of the famous examples, and a very important example from the nudge unit was changing the feedback you get in tax letters. So you get a letter saying you haven't paid your tax on time, and you can just say, well, you're late, get on with it, or you, or sorry, you haven't um, submitted your return. Or you can say, truly, 90% of people have, have, have submitted their return, and you haven't. And that gives an uplift. People think, oh, good grief, I, 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 I sort of thought this wasn't very important, but everyone else is doing it, help. And, and so that produces an uplift, which is, is very beneficial for, for, for government. Um, but that's, that's, that is a nudge. I mean, that's a tiny change to a letter, which makes us a, a not, a not gigantic, but a significant difference. And it's, it's useful. But I think one of the things that's gone slightly wrong with the, 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 as well, the PR in the, in the behavioral insights world, um, and it's, it's not, 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 not anyone's particular fault, is that the idea of these sort of tiny little tweaks 
has become associated with the, the whole approach. Are, are we saying that the nudge has had its day? Uh, no, I don't think so. It's more a case that the nudges were only ever supposed to be part of the part of the, 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 the picture. So, I mean, it's certainly true that small changes can sometimes, though not necessarily that often, sometimes make a big difference. And that's the sort of, the, 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 the kind of, the simple PR message underlying the original nudge story, which wasn't really ever supposed to be the whole story, is sometimes you can make a tweak to your tax letter or um, some other way the government's interacting with you. And the thought was that sometimes small changes can make a big difference. And that is occasionally true. But it's a mistake to think that the, the most of the big problems that we face as a society can be addressed by, by small changes. What we need to do is make you know, the really things that matter are the rules of the game, the kind of system we're working within. And I wonder whether this has implications for your uh, business, Edward, in that theories come, theories go. Um, aren't you in danger sometimes of being misled by the theory of the moment, only to find out it will be replaced later on by something more effective? I don't think misled is the right term. So um, I don't think it's necessarily the responsibility of academics as well to to keep industry informed of, of what is right and what is wrong. I think it's the job of academics to continue that debate and continue evolving those theories. Uh, and it's our job to try and interpret and apply those in, in the ways that we believe are most appropriate. So uh, we don't, for example, wed ourselves to a particular theory at, at Cogco. So we broadly look at behavioural science. We um, try to keep abreast of the latest research, the latest insights, ensuring that the work that we are doing is evidence-based. And as that evidence evolves over time, then, then so will our approach. Uh, so yeah, I think I think it's uh, and as as also as Nick says at the, at the start, it's a two way relationship. So a lot of the work that we do at Cogco is applying those insights and then feeding that hopefully back into into the world of academia as well. So we are regularly running experiments, uh, applying those insights, and sometimes we're able to talk, talk publicly about them. But then we also keep a track internally of, of what we know works and, and what doesn't work. Um, so yeah, I think I think it's a two way uh, it's a two way street. It's a two way relationship. Uh, and yeah, I think this idea of kind of being misled by academia, I think, is 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 a bit of a misnomer. So to that degree, Edward, it's not a case of you having a behavioural insights team on the staff. You are all a, a behavioural insights team as well as a company. Yeah. And, and at Cogco, we have a, a mixture of, of skills and disciplines. So uh, we're a team at the moment, about 15 people, uh, about a third of those, maybe a bit more are behavioral scientists. And we also have designers and, and data scientists. Uh, and it's not as well that they they work in separate teams. So all of our projects are multidisciplinary. People work together. We don't have kind of separate teams or departments. Um, so I think, yeah, we... we, we we ensure that what well, we try to make sure that, that we're up to date with the latest evidence. And a devil's advocate question to you, Nick. I mean, did John D. Rockefeller, Thomas Edison, Henry Ford, even Walt Disney need the academic world to make a success of their businesses? Uh, well, I think I, I think there's always been a, a productive interchange between um, the academic and non-academic world. But I think it'd be a complete hubris on the part of academics to think that the, uh, the without us, you know, the, the world is rudderless. Uh, I think there's you know, there are brilliant, insightful people doing all kinds of brilliant research and brilliant thinking, uh, both inside and outside academia. And if you take, say, Thomas Edison, there's no question Thomas Edison and his vast team was a was a, a factory for brilliant, brilliant applied research. 
Um, and of course, that itself you know, connected up with with various bits of pure research that were no doubt going on at the time. But um, but yes, this 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 stuff doesn't have to go on inside academia solely. And I think one of the things that's very exciting about the whole behavioural insights movement is that there is an awful lot of crossover and interchange between um, the, uh, the academic research, such as we do. Uh, and the kind of work that, that Ed, Ed and colleagues are doing. The fact that there is a you know, increasing, very fast-growing um, sector uh, of people doing you know, pretty much you know, fairly hardcore behavioural science research, but with real applications in mind, and that's you know, commercially um, you know, it has real commercial, commercial grounding. I mean, that's that's really really rather exciting. And I think I I, I think it would be a mistake to think that the, that the, all the real the really deep insights are coming from the uh, the, the, the business school side. I think uh, quite quite the opposite. I think it's you know, the, the, the the insights are coming from from all directions. And it's like by keeping the connections between us that we're going to make this this uh, area continue to to, to to prosper. And I wonder, Edward, you know, at what point where in history did we begin to move from? I don't know. Rockefeller to the world of Steve Jobs, Bill Gates, Mark Zuckerberg, and dare I say, Edward Gardner. <laughs> well, that, that's that. Yeah, okay. That's that's a that's a tough question to ask. So, answer. Oh, so sorry. So, um, I think what we've seen from a lot of our partners is an increasing need to be able to demonstrate the impact, um, or to to provide some kind of evidence as to why to choose one business decision over another. Uh, and with increasing, I guess, pressure on budgets uh, and need to be competitive um, and need to be successful in the marketplace, I think the use of experimentation, the use of behavioral insights provides a very strong evidence base to inform that decision making. So it's both, I think, in terms of the application of behavioral insights to business decision making, so internally, so whether that's strategy, market research and so forth, as well as the application to improve consumer products and services. And I think that change has is, is been happening in the, in the last few decades. I mean, a lot of the, the behavioral science research that um, I guess the work that we are doing is based on is from the kind of 50s, 60s, 70s and beyond, and only really uh, made it into the mainstream uh, in the last kind of 10, 20 years. So uh, yeah, I think I think that shift has, has been coming in the, in the last few decades. Um, and uh, it's kind of good for us in that, we see our approach as evidence-based, um, trying to bridge that that gap between academia uh, and industry and helping businesses make more informed decisions to ultimately make more uh, effective, uh, more impactful products and services and more commercially successful products and services. But if your business suffered a downturn and the profits were tanking, would you question the academic research and be prepared to supersede it? Or would you say the research is fine, something else is wrong? Cogco talks about the application of behavioural science, design and data science uh, to develop and test uh, products and services. And so I think we are not necessarily wedded to a kind of a narrow part within within uh, the world of academia so we try to take a broad understanding of behavioral science and behavioral science is a very broad field it incorporates psychology neuroscience um economics and and, and beyond uh, and so i think touch wood is it's highly unlikely that it would be a kind of fundamental uh earthquake at the base of many of those disciplines um but we kind of recognize the need to, to continue to be agile and, and that's why uh we try to ensure that that we're kind of always up to date with with the latest developments in those in those areas um i think potentially what changes over time is is the application of of those insights and also kind of innovation in methodologies as well i think that that might change over time so um i think what we've learned or what I've learned, say, from, from people like Nick is not just about insights from behavioral science, but it's also about the methods that you might use uh, in research and development. So, for example, the use of, of simulation, the use of, of, of panels, the use of um, 
creating experiences that might kind of replicate what someone sees in the real world, but prior to them actually experiencing it in the real world. Like these are all innovations within within behavioral science that are kind of beyond the insights themselves. Uh, and so it might be that if there are kind of shifts within within um, the kind of underlying theories that we need to both I guess respond to that, but also think about how do we how do we improve our methods? How do we change our methods to better understand uh, what is and isn't working? I suppose the good news for you, Nick, is that um, Edward and people like him will still be turning to academia, to to Warwick, to the business school, for insights into how best to make systems function. Well, I think that's right, and I think the going back to the two way point, I think it's also the case that to the extent that there are surprising things coming out in the applied domain. You're trying things that you think ought to work and somehow don't. I mean, that's stuff we need to know about. And that's really, really crucial. So if it turns out, so, so for example, that many of the things we're talking about are very basic things like the relativity of perception, say, um, and the, the, sort of the very sort of narrow focus of attention and the biased properties of memory, things that really seem to be very basic things about psychology. So it'd be very surprising if it turned out that we, in some real, uh, real world context, predictions based on those, that kind of thinking turned out to be to be um, the opposite of what turned out to come out unexpectedly. Uh, but if they did, that's telling us something deep about the mind. So I think we should always be thinking as, as, um, as, as academics, you know, what's the real world telling us here? Nick, thanks very much indeed. Uh, Nick Chater and Edward Gardner on the possibly symbiotic relationship between business and academia. I'm Trevor Barnes, and this has been a Core Insights podcast for Warwick Business School.